This episode is brought to you by Estec Insurance. Estec Insurance provide friendly, expert advice on a wide range of insurance services for businesses, startups, and everyone in between. With specialisms in science and technology, Estec work with you to create a tailored insurance package, making sure you're protected against whatever might come next. Plus, Estec offer a 10% discount to all Bradfield Centre members. So visit estec.co.uk or call 01 223 Welcome to Inside the Bradfield Centre. I'm James Parton, Managing Director of the Bradfield Centre. And I'm Adelina Chalmers. I'm also known as the Geek Whisperer as I help engineers decode other people. Joining us on today's show is Anne Bailey, who's the CEO and founder of Form the Future. to hearing how Form the Future was started because it's a it's quite an interesting one isn't it it's not a regular startup it's a not-for-profit um, enterprise and I'd really like to find out how did she manage to take it off the ground yeah and you know with obviously all of the disruption caused by COVID I'd love to hear from Anne how they're adapting how they've been affected um, and also you know for the kind of work they do how do they measure their impact because obviously it's all about uh, demonstrating impact back to her kind of corporate sponsors and other sources of funding and also the schools and the kids so that, that would be really interesting to find out hi Anne. welcome to the show we're really excited to have you here today tell us a bit about your background first Hi, yes, thanks. It's great to be here. Uh, so as you can probably tell, uh, and I'm not really, I'm not from here originally. I've, uh, like so many people in Cambridge, I've come from far away across the sea, grew up in, in the United States, in Philadelphia, precisely. And I did all my education in the States before coming over to the UK when I was about 25 in fact, I think it's worth sort of starting with my education because really that is the starting point for what I do now with Form the Future. So, you know, when I was at school, I was I was a sort of typical good student, quite well-rounded um, and, you know, had the sort of choice of where I wanted to go for university and what I wanted to do when I got there. And the fact that I, when I got there, I went to Harvard, I was steered towards doing history and literature because those were two subjects that I'd done, you know, particularly well at, at school, but also because um, kind of that's what girls did. They studied the humanities. They didn't take the calculus or the physics or or any of the, the sort of harder subjects, Um and, and pursue them at degree level, at least not the group that I grew up with. And so that's been a really interesting uh, starting point for, you know, what prompted me later on to really ask questions about the careers advice and guidance that we give students while they're at school about what they can do after education. You know, another point about my um, early start in life is that 
I never had any careers advice and guidance. So we actually had one day of work experience in my entire sort of, you know, 18 years of, of education. And, um, and I spent one day um, at a law firm and, you know, I was mildly curious about law, but it was maritime law and that wasn't something I was, in, I was particularly interested in. And so generally I felt that I, I lacked any sense of what could I do when I left school. And so suffice to say, I've spent the last 20 years trying to figure out what I wanted to do when I grew up. And what I eventually discovered is what I wanted to do was to help others get the information they need much earlier on so that they are able to make an informed decision about all their options. And really, that's sort of what brings me to to form the future. That's uh, that's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, so why don't you um, why don't you tell us a little bit more about you know form the future? You know what what the mission of the of the company is? Maybe how it you know you've given us a hint there, I guess, in terms of the original inspiration for it. But you know, just tell us the story of how it came to be and and the work that you do. Yeah, sure. So our mission is to help all young people in the area make uh, informed decisions about their future. So really to expose them to a wide range of careers using relatable role models drawn from you know companies and organizations who can inspire them to consider careers they may have never encountered before. And you know, it's a direct consequence of my own problems and sort of the sense that there was something was missing in the education system, something which sort of, you know, foregrounded more of the variety and the choices, but also perhaps considered some of the um, the barriers, um, the uh, the prejudices, the sort of the reason we think some jobs are for some people and not for others. And so that's something that I'm on a mission to to challenge. I actually started the work that led to Form the Future back in 2013. And um, the story of that is that um, I had previously worked in PR. My first job out of school was in um, was in publishing. That took me to the UK. And I ended up going into PR because the one thing I could do well is I could write. The PR then became CSR, you know, how can companies make a positive impact on their communities? And the CSR led to running a big education program for BT. And that education program involved thousands of BT people going out into schools, uh, acting as volunteers to sort of raise the skills level of young people across the country. And it was such a win-win for everyone involved, um, a win for the students who benefited from this support, a win for the volunteers who felt it was incredibly worthwhile work. And, you know, they would actually say, this is the reason I stay at BT to do this. And then finally for BT itself, who was able to demonstrate that they were a very responsible employer and they could sort of use that when they were pursuing large public sector contracts and so on. Lots of the work that I'd done over the years, I'd done either in-house or running my own consultancy. And I came to a month where I literally looked to the next month and I didn't know who I was going to invoice. And it was the first time in a very long time that I suddenly was confronted with, you know, I really needed to get creative and think, what am I going to do next? 
And I was living in Cambridge at the time. My children were in local schools. And I just thought, you know, the schools in Cambridge are not connecting with the local business community or, or academia. You know, it may have happened on a very small level, but the scale of what was possible was just not in place. And so I went to a network of the schools and I said, would you like me to help you build links to industry so that we can make sure young people are learning, you know, from people in these companies about the careers on their doorstep? And they said, yes, uh, that would be great. Uh, We really want to do this and uh, we need someone. So I started that work back in 2013 with the local schools partnership. It spiraled, you know, it just grew so quickly. The schools were lapping it up. They really appreciated the support of an intermediary to make these links to businesses. And the businesses who'd been, you know, saying for a long time, we don't think students are really prepared for the careers. They're coming to work to our work and they're not work ready. They wanted to get involved and they wanted to help. So after a couple of years of doing this on a part-time basis as a project, um, the schools who'd been funding this you know, said, we've actually exhausted the budget we had available for this. You have to go out and find new funding. And by this time, I'd acquired a, a colleague who had joined me, and her name is Michaela. And Michaela and I decided to form our own company, um, Form the Future. We set it up as a social enterprise. So it's a mission-driven organization. All our profits are reinvested in the, in the cause. And we went out to secure contracts. And fortunately, we got our very first contract with the um, Greater Cambridge Partnership. It was called the, um, I think it was called, it was mainly known as the City Deal in those days. And um, and that was back in 2015. And we've been going since then. Um, Michaela left the organization 2019, and I took on the role of CEO at that point. But we've continued to grow and expand. Um, the greater Cambridge area is still sort of our core, um, our heartland, as it were, but we've expanded into places like Norwich and Ipswich and some of the surrounding areas. But we're still very much sort of in the Cambridge city region as being the sort of epicenter of what we, where we, where we operate. Can I, can I ask you, what would you say was the big, biggest challenge for you um, shifting from, oh, schools are not funding this anymore to we have to go into great wider world. I mean, I'm, I'm quite familiar with that concept because <laughs> I, uh, I worked in, in NGOs for many years and, and it's a very, very scary thought for lots of people when they run out of funding. And yet you just went out there and got this funding from, um, from the Greater Cambridge Partnership. Uh, how was that the biggest challenge, getting the first round of funding? And what do you think did it? Was it having proven the concept in that project with the schools initially? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Having proof of concept, you know, we're really lucky that I had those first two years as a bit of a, a test bed. And I, w- I was invited to contribute to the city deal bid that went to Treasury for the for the very first contract. And they, they cited my work as an example of what could be done with a skills program. So when they got the contract, um, I went back and like knocking on the door saying, remember me, you know, we were in the uh, bid as an example, you know, let's now talk about funding it. 
but it wasn't that easy. And we did have to go into, um, comp- it was a com- competitive tender. And every contract we've had since then has always been in competition with others. So you have to, um, so yes, it was, it was not an easy win by any stretch of the imagination. And of course, you also have to continue to deliver. So what's the hardest thing? I mean, clearly as an as a as a nonprofit continually shoring up the the resources is the most important thing. Um we may not maybe a nonprofit but we certainly have costs. Uh, our costs are our people, the technology, you know, has tr- traditionally been and we still have to, you know, as place to work to come together. It's really important to us. And um and we also have to continue to be working towards getting the next contract while delivering the one we've got. And in fact, you know, more than that, we need to make sure we don't have all our eggs in one basket either. We did hit a moment a few years ago when there was a delay in the procurement process. Our largest contractor, we were anticipating going, they were going out to the market in April. In the event, they didn't go out into the market until the autumn. And during that period, we had to really make our business stretch. Now, what, you know, we have luckily, you know, learned from that to the point that we we have expanded and diversified our services. So we have, we not only have contracts where we have, you know, a single contract with a single organization, but we we sell directly into schools. We sell directly into businesses. We have contracts with other organizations. And we run a really successful program that's completely employer funded called Cambridge Launchpad. So we've now essentially spread the risk across more organizations and more more funding sources. And that has significantly eased my anxiety and the risk of anything happening, uh, the fright that we had before. So actually, there's a lot of complexity in the business. I mean, you've kind of touched on some of it there, Anne. I mean, you've got the, you have to build the relationships with the schools directly. You have to build the relationships with the organizations that are going to support the program. And then you have to go out and recruit the, I guess, the, the role models. And you have to kind of, you know, do the training, I guess, and help them figure out how they can go in and be effective. There's a lot of work to be done there. How big is your organization? <laughs> it is actually, it is, it is extraordinarily complex, actually. Um, it, so the organization is, including one or two of our sort of contractors, we're pushing 20 people very shortly. So um, now, not everyone works full time. So FTEs is going to be a lower number. In fact, I've always been a big fan of and supporter of flexible working. Um, and it's, um, and, and so, you know, almost everyone who works for us has their own sort of deal as it were, um, and work slightly less than full-time, which is great. Um, but no, you're right, it, James, it is really complex because it, I'm often, I'm always trying to work on, you know, our strategy, our business plan, our implementation plan. And it's not as simple as saying we make the widgets, we sell the widgets, we, we ship the widgets. Um, we have multiple stake- stakeholders who we have to make sure we are relevant and delivering quality for so whether that's you know fundamentally the ben- the core beneficiary is the young person you know we want to make sure that everything we do is effective with those young people that it's 
that they're connecting with it, it's connecting with them, that is making a difference, that we can track and demonstrate the impact we have. So that is the biggest challenge, and that's the most important thing. So we're constantly redesigning our interventions, as you say, resourcing and sourcing those volunteers. Those role models are so important. I often say they're my like my energy source, our fuel. And we, you know, and but we're they don't do it as a job, they do it as a volunteer. So we have to continually find a renewable source of them because you can't rely on them indefinitely. We have to train them, we have to make sure they're performing well and that they're getting what they want out of it too, which is that training, that feel-good factor, the PR, the visibility. We need to get our funding sources, you know, whether schools budgets are very constrained, as you probably know, our schools in Cambridgeshire are amongst the worst funded in the whole of the country. Uh, I think they were the fifth lowest funded at one stage per head. You know, shocking, really, when you think about it. You know, when you think about the the value we're creating in this region, that we're not funding our education. Um, so we have to supplement that with what we can raise from whether it's local authority, public sector funds, European funding has been a source of funding for us. Um, and then corporates, you know, our corporate partners are so vital to what we do. So it's, um, it is, it is a lot of work. And, um, and I, you know, I've been lucky to recruit great people to help me do it. And, um, you know, I often don't get enough of a chance to talk en- enough about the sort of the strength of the team, but you, um, it's uh, it's so important. So you know, at the same time, you've got to keep the team happy, um, make sure that they're developing and that they're getting what they need out of it. But um, you know, so far so good. Uh, we've we've had a steady period of growth, apart from that one blip where I talked about when we had a, a funding sort of gap where we had to do complicated plans for who we were going to lay off first and how we could wind it down and you know. We, we literally, it was very, very scary time, but we've overcome that and we feel we're on a good trajectory now. So Anne, it's really interesting that you mentioned um, that you had a, a time where you had a gap in funding, which meant that you had to think about making people redundant and how are you going to make them redundant? Can you tell us a bit what it's like from your CEO perspective? Because, you know, as an employee, I was made redundant um, a couple of times. I know what that feels like. I'm sure many, many other people listening to this will have been through similar situations. What it's like to be on the other side? What it's like to be the CEO who has to make those sorts of gut-wrenching and hard-tearing decisions? Yeah. Oh, you know, I've been made redundant as well. And, you know, and I didn't know it's a, it's not, and it's nothing you want to inflict on anyone. So, yes, it is absolutely the worst thing that you can do as a leader of an organization, particularly an organization that you created yourself. So, you know, this company is my baby, you know, it's, um, and when you suddenly are faced with the challenges of not being able to looking at your cash flow. So, you know, cash flow management is absolutely fundamental in any business. We all know that. But particularly so with a small organization, a small startup like ours, we've never borrowed. So we've had no investors. We've only ever been paid to deliver. And one of the things we realized early on is that we weren't we weren't charging enough money for our services. So we weren't building up any reserves and we were just literally, you know, making payroll, making rent and not putting aside resources. When we came to this sort of funding gap, 
problem, we had to go in very carefully and really analytically examine what was the cost of delivering all of our services, which were profitable, which were a drain on the rest of the business. And we had to take a really hard um, decision about stopping one of our services. It was our mentoring program. And we loved our mentoring program. We knew it had huge impact for the young people it was designed for. And we knew the mentors loved being part of that. And yet we, you know, we'd had an initial grant from the big lottery fund to set it up. And once that had expired, we hadn't found a way of, of generating enough additional revenue to keep it going. So when you're looking at a funding shortfall and really, you know, um, focusing just on the, the sort of the, the most essential services, we had to, as I always said, pause that program with the hope and the intention that we would secure funding to resurrect it. But, you know, making the decision of who to, who to, um, whose job to terminate is a horrible thing and actually doing it is even worse. In fortunately, we, we actually went out and did some crowdfunding and we did find that people came forward and supported us. Um, one of our big supporters, um, you know, I'm going to mention them, Marshall Aerospace and Defense Group, they came forward, actually the Marshall Holdings came forward and um, came to an arrangement with us where they paid us in advance for some of the work we were doing. And in fact, we were able to access some additional funds as well. And we got out of the hole we were in financially and managed to turn the corner. However, we did have to lose one member of the team. And it always... It still hurts me um, to remember doing that. And it, but what I've taken away from that is a religious focus on cash flow, really thinking ahead, not letting ourselves get in a vulnerable position where we don't know where our income is going to be coming from for the next, say, 12 to 18 months. And, um, and also doing a lot better sort of, um, um, analysis around our pricing and making sure we're doing proper full cost recovery when we're setting our prices. So, you know, running this business has taught me so much. I learn every day. And, um, you know, I think you just, you get better and better really as a business leader when you're running a small startup that you're trying to grow. And whether it's a nonprofit like us or a for-profit, you know, the, the, the focus on running a successful business is no different. So, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, and thanks, you know, thanks for being open on that. I think, you know, hopefully the, the listeners will, will take a lot of uh, inspiration from that. Just to pause the conversation a second and tell you a little bit more about the changes we're making at the Bradfield Centre, we now offer a whole range of new flexible membership packages which support home workers, hybrid home working blended with access to high quality office space and meeting room hire by the hour. Starting from as little as £45 per month, visit bradfieldcentre.com for more information or call 01223 919 600. 
changing the topic slightly, uh, you, you can't, you kind of in this cycle of constantly having to seek funding and, you know, look for support from different organizations. So I'm guessing you're very impact driven in terms of demonstrating the value of the work that you do. So could you just kind of tell us briefly how you kind of uh, measure the impact of the programs to, to demonstrate the value both back to the schools and the children and also organizations that support you? Sure. So, you know, as a social enterprise, really, we measure our impact first and foremost. That's really what drives us. And we um, we set our impact measures around the, the young people that we can reach and work with and what changes for them. So it's a little bit hard to have, you know, a, the full picture of the impact of our work, let a, n- primarily because with some children, we start as young as, say, eight years old. And, you know, whether we're going to change their decision making about their future careers, you know, is going to take a long time to see. So the full impact of our work, you know, may not be known for eight, 10, 15 years. However, we still obviously measure every intervention that we do, and we're looking for a combination of self-reported changes. So things like, do they feel more aware of different career opportunities? Do they feel more confident? Have they gained specific skills in key employability skills like teamwork, problem-solving, communication skills, or practical things like putting a CV together, performing well at a, at a, in an interview? Um, we then sort of triangulate that with um, teacher um, re- evaluation. So, you know, has this student, you know, as a result of that mentoring program I talked about earlier, has this student found newfound motivation to attend school, to behave well, to work hard? You know, have we seen their grades go up? So there's other ways we can sort of, um, we can cross-reference the student-reported data with the teacher reported data. And then there are the employers themselves. You know, have they, have we helped them to attract new talent into their business? Have we sourced um, apprentices for them? Have those students arrived at work, you know, better motivated and ready to, to, to engage? Those are the ways in which we try to track our impact. Thinking about um, coronavirus and uh, the impact that we've experienced in the last year. Um, so last year in March, when we could see what was coming, we had to make that terrible decision of shutting down all the planned events in school that we run. Uh, we had at that point worked with about 13,000 students and we had were expecting and had made arrangements to work with another 7,000 before July. And during that time in a normal year, we probably would have worked with another 10,000. We really were on course to have one of our busiest years ever in the 1920 uh, year. Um, between our careers work in schools, our expansion into places like Fenland and East Cambridgeshire, activities in Norwich we were doing, and Cambridge Launchpad, which was working with 28 schools around the Cambridge City region, we really were looking at having what I call a real bumper year. Unfortunately, schools closing in March, everything was cancelled. And whilst we were able to adapt and do various things through using video and virtual delivery, the numbers went down. This year, so from September, we went straight into everything being delivered remotely and and virtually, and that worked really well, actually. Um, However, 
um, schools have been struggling to make time to do the sort of work that we like to do with them. I had a meeting with some schools last night, and we were talking about what is practical during this period when students are home learning. And, you know, we are really constrained in some ways. Now, everything we do now has to be pre-recorded, distributed as a video. Um, there's beauty in that, which means we make it once and we can use it many times. But that question of real impact, real engagement, it's harder to know whether we're really getting through to the young people, whether we're really making the difference that we want to make. So I I look forward to a time when we can do more direct engagement with young people. Um, we will continue during this period to be as useful and relevant as we can be. And we still call on the community to get behind us, to work with us, to continue to inspire young people about careers in the future. In fact, through the through the um, pandemic and through the economic recession, we know our work is going to be needed more than ever before. Uh, the the divide between that existed in the past between the sort of students from sort of families of reasonable means and students and families of disadvantage has it was bad to begin with. It is going to be far worse than ever before. Uh, there are many students, I mean, I can't, I can't even begin to quantify the, the volume of them who have lost out on learning, they've lost out on work experience placements, they've lost out on just the sort of things that we do with them. Yeah, I, I am worried about the increase in increasing gap between the sort of haves and have nots and how that's going to play out for their career opportunities over the next 10 years. You know, if anyone's listening to this and wants to get involved, how, how do they get in touch? Well, we would love to have them. Um, we absolutely love working with people who feel like we do, that we want to give young people a chance, that we want to challenge ideas about who can do what job, and we want to just sort of share our own experiences with them. So if you want to join us as a, as a, as a corporate partner, we would love to talk to you about doing so and how that can fit your CSR uh, program. Individuals who want to volunteer to take part in, at the moment, pre-recorded video sessions, but in future face-to-face -face encounters as well, um, they can go to our website, formthefuture.org.uk, look for the vo to volunteer with us page and sign up. Um, we do provide training and support to make sure that you know you, you, we can help you be effective in your interventions. Um, and any company as well that really thinks they could offer an opportunity to a young person, a school leaver who may have, um, you know, be, be worried about their future prospects, um, be concerned that they haven't been able to get work experience over the last year, um, but who really wants to learn, who wants to get started, talk to us about creating apprenticeships. They are such a fabulous way to give someone a stepping stone into a career. And we can really connect you with young people who are hungry for those opportunities. So, um, yeah, really three things. If you're a company who wants to be involved and support our work, please talk to me. Just contact me. Uh, if you're a volunteer, go to our website, sign up, and we will talk you through that process. And then if you're a company who'd like to find out about creating early career opportunities and just want some guidance on how to make sense of the incentives that are out there, or um, any of the sort of, you know, what looks like very bureaucratic process, but 
and is, but we can help you through it. Um, we're here to help, so get in touch, Tim. Amazing. Okay, well, hopefully we can help with this. And uh, thanks so much for taking the time to come on today. It was really interesting to hear um, the perspective of a CEO about what it's like on the other side of the table when you are in the potential situation of having to make people redundant and how you're trying to minimize the impact on people um, in those sorts of um, situations. So for me, it was refreshing to hear that side of it. How about you, James? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think Anne was really open and honest with us. You could kind of hear in your voice, even now, it kind of, you know, still still affects her talking about it. Um, but, uh, you know, just so refreshing. You, it, it's become a bit of a cliche in tech that every startup in their pitch deck talks about how they're going to make the world a better place. And it's, it's just refreshing to actually speak to someone that actually is genuinely doing that. You know, the, pa- the passion for what she, you know, she does really came through in the conversation with Anne. Um, so just, to, you know, just to be Pete, that if anyone listening to this wants to get involved, um, you know, please get in touch directly with Anne or, or via us. You know, more than happy to connect you up if you reach out to us too. Thank you very much to Anne Bailey for coming onto the show today, and also thank you to Carl Homer of Cambridge TV for producing this podcast. You can listen to this and previous episodes by searching for Inside the Bradfield Centre on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher or Amazon Music or by visiting bradfieldcentre.com. Music